had this hypothesis that habits were going to be a big deal, that um, you know, the Apple uh, App Store had just opened up and the iPhone was still in its first version. And, and I could see that what was happening was that as interfaces shrink, meaning as uh, screens from desktops to laptops to mobile devices, now wearable devices on our wrists, and now with with audible devices such as Amazon Echo and uh, Cortana and uh, uh, you know the Google Home, the, the the screen has essentially disappeared. The screen interface. So what that means is that as the screen interface shrinks, habits become more important because there's less space on the screen to trigger people. Ground Up, episode 22. It's been over four years since Hooked was first published, and that yellow cover still manages to steal glances throughout my workday as it's perched beneath my desk lamp. Four years is almost an eternity in modern tech, but the lessons that Nier Yall first published in Hooked are more relevant today than ever. Games, consumer tech, even B2B tech, they've all taken hold of our behavior in ways we've never seen. People can't put their phones down. They tweet. They spend hours on Facebook. We even create ways to spend less time with our technology. Nirial, an entrepreneur turned behavioral scientist, wanted to know what these companies were doing differently to create such habit-forming products. Hooked was both his study and conclusion from that. I recently sat down with Nir to talk about all things Hooked, including how companies successfully create habits, how we as consumers can increase our awareness of these forces at play, and the ethics of it all. Hooked is one of those books that's been on my desk, I feel like, since it came out, right? So we were just talking, so 2014, the the edition with the yellow cover that I have here, that, that's when that one came out. So it's it has bookmarks in it, stickies, uh, it's highlighted, it's probably a couple of coffee stains on it too, but <laughs> don't take that personal, that just means it's... Those are my favorite kind, I love that. <laughs> that, that. It's much better than the nice, pristine versions of the book sometimes I see people with, and I'm like, you didn't even read this. Right, <laughs> you right. just want my signature on it. <laughs> right, right. So it's 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 been through the ringer, and uh, I, I, com- I constantly keep coming back to this, which is probably uh, uh, a hell of an endorsement, especially how fast everything moves. That the um, I keep coming back to this, and everything's still relevant. I know it's only been four years or four or five years, but um, this the space and the technology moves so quickly. But the lessons here are still uh, applicable, obviously. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to to dig into. You spent some time in in the video gaming and advertising industries. Um, so, like, how what kind of role did that that type of experience play? in you know you becoming a a student and practitioner really of of behavioral design and and everything that led to the hooked model yeah so it was really in that uh crucible of advertising and gaming this was back in 2007 this was back when uh you said the word apps and apps didn't mean (laughs) uh iphone apps because the iphone uh, or, sorry, the Apple App Store didn't exist yet. It was when we said apps, we meant Facebook apps back when, I don't know if you remember those days when people were throwing sheep around and oh, like sure. all these stupid, yeah, it was sure. kind of all ridiculous. But there was something really amazing happening in that, you know, people could create these, uh, you, know, you know, games or apps in their basement. And then within a couple of days, they were getting millions of people to interact with them. And we just thought that was unbelievable. And so uh, my last company was at the intersection of, gaming and advertising, trying to bring new forms of advertising into these these apps. 
And uh, it was at that intersection of gaming and advertising that I kind of learned these tactics and tried to understand what it was about these companies that kind of, you know, built these products and, and, and got people to use them. And many times they flopped and a few succeeded. And then that kind of piqued my interest to, to really dive into the science of habit formation. Because when my last company was acquired, uh, I, I had this hypothesis that habits were going to be a big deal, that, um, you know, the Apple... Uh, App Store had just opened up and the iPhone was still in its first version. And, and I could see that what was happening was that as interfaces shrink, meaning as uh, screens from desktops to laptops to mobile devices, now wearable devices on our wrists, and now with, with audible devices such as Amazon Echo and uh, Cortana and uh, uh, you know the Google Home, the, the, the screen has essentially disappeared, the screen interface. So what that means is that as a screen interface shrinks, habits become more important because there's less space on the screen to trigger people. So when you have a big fat screen on your desktop, there's lots of places to put triggers, but on a phone, there's even fewer. You know, if you're not on the home screen of a phone, you might as well not exist if you're just, you know, on, on page six of someone's, uh, uh, you know, phone. Uh, on, on the wearable devices, like on the Apple Watch, it's even more of a constraint because there's even fewer places to put these triggers. And then, of course, it disappears completely. There's nowhere to put a visual trigger when it comes to audible devices. So I had this hypothesis that habits were really, really going to matter. And then I didn't have a very good understanding of what made for a high engagement product, uh, a la Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, Snapchat, you know, what is it about those products that makes them so sticky? And so, um, I took what I learned from my, my business experience, uh, talked to the people who were doing it right, did some very extensive interviews with those folks back in the very, very early days of many of these companies, and spent a lot of time doing research in the Stanford library and, and talking to psychologists and trying to figure out, you know, what is it about these products? And so um, it turns out that they don't use anything that, that's, that, that is that spectacular ter in terms of the psychology side. A lot of it's very old psychology, 50, 60-year-old uh, research that, that I put in my book. It's not that it's new research, it's that it's a new application of old research, such as, you know, variable rewards and uh, uh, the effects of, of, of social reinforcement and, and, you know, things that are not necessarily breaking science, but the application of that science is, is very new. And we can see how powerful that science is when we see the numbers of people. Uh, Facebook just topped 2 billion users. Uh, and, and how engaging those products are. So that, that was really the goal of the book, was to explain how these products get us hooked. Uh, and the, and the, 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 my intention was twofold. Number one was to figure out how can I learn from those products and services so that I can teach other people who are making products to help build healthy habits, right? Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. I mean, th those, those companies didn't need to read my book. They already know these techniques. <laughs> my goal was to figure out how can I help other people building the kind of products that can help people you know, exercise more and save money and stay connected to loved ones and just live a better life, what if we could use the same tactics to build all sorts of better products? Uh, that was the first real motivation. The second motivation is that, you know, I, I do believe the world is becoming a potentially more habit-forming and potentially addictive place. And so when you read the book, you, you, you kind of see how this stuff is also being done to you. And I, I hope that kind of becomes a, an aid to help us put technology in its place as well. Yeah, you, you talk about that several times in the book, uh, just uh, to, to raise our own self-awareness when this when this technology or, or when these 
these elements of science are, are being used in, in ways against us, which, which I thought was, was great. It was a great reminder throughout the book that, you know, uh, these can be employed, but also these can be employed against you. And it's good right. to just have that awareness. Um, right, right. How did you, how did you construct the hooked model, right? Because the, which is what the, the book is based off of. Like, how did yeah. you, how did you settle on that, uh, that, that sort of four quadrants, um, uh, that, that make up the hooked model? Yeah, that was, that was really the hardest part because there's so much interesting research out there that, um, my, my, my job was really difficult in that I was trying to figure out what the most important pieces were. Uh, you, you know, you could, you could write volumes about the stuff that I didn't write and, and many people have already written those books. And so I, 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 I was looking for what would be very practical, uh, but also simple enough to be useful. You know, if I, if I wrote a big long book that people just, uh, you know, only academics read, uh, and that people can't actually put to use, then, then that, you know, that's not, that wasn't my goal. I was looking for the book that I was looking for as a CEO, as someone who was, uh, you know, heavy into product design. Uh, I needed a book that just told me how to do it. <laughs> and so that's why I wrote this book. And I, I, I wanted to make it as, as, uh, as pain-free as possible. So, uh, you know, the chapters, each of the chapters has at the end, uh, it has a remember this, it has a do this now. It's like a very, it's, it's a book written for people who don't usually read books, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and so I, I settled on these four basic parts of the hook model because I felt that that's, um, the one, the most important characteristics, but then two, the characteristics that we see repeated over and over and over again inside all of the products we just talked about, the, the most habit forming products in the world. Right. And I want to get into the, so, so the four main quadrants really are, uh, triggers, which is made up of external or internal action, variable reward, which you mentioned earlier and investment. Um, and this was a book that kind of changed my worldview, not just on, from a business standpoint, I've worked in SaaS for a bit now, and it didn't just change my worldview from a professional perspective, but, um, uh, especially leading off with, with triggers, I started to understand cause you, there's a line in the book where you mentioned, you know, habits are not created. They are built upon. And I think many of us try to create habits, right? Good habits, um, or change bad ones. And, and as professionals, as marketers, as product managers, we also try to create habits, which is really hard, right? Um, <laughs> and your point in the book is that habits are, aren't created they're built upon, uh, existing ones. Right. So, right. You know, my personal life, if I'm like, well, I, I need to floss before I go to bed, right? I need to tie that to something that I already do that's already a habit, and there's a much higher probability that I'm going to start doing that, right? So um, it, in talking about triggers, uh, and obviously there's two types, internal and external, um, what would be, uh, I guess, good examples uh, or applications of each that, that, that you've seen? I mean, I, I know you talk about a bunch in the book, um, but that first step in triggers um, what, what would be two good examples, uh, in both of those areas? Yeah. Yeah. So external triggers, you'll be very familiar with, right? So external triggers are these pings, dings, and other things in your life that tell you what to do next. It's the notifications, it's the emails. Uh, it can be a, a, a person, you know, anybody or anything that gets your attention by telling you what to do next. So, uh, when you see that email subject line that tells you what to do next, or, uh, a, a click here or buy now or play this, anything in your external environment that tells you what to do next, that's an external trigger. Uh, a lot of us, you know, in the product design community, we know all about external triggers. You always have to have these external triggers to, to prompt an action. 
But what I think is even more important when it comes to a habit building perspective is that you have an internal trigger. Now, an internal trigger is uh, a a place, a, a routine, a situation, but most often it is an emotion and specifically a negative emotion. Uh, and, and so these, you know, it's what we do when we f- are feeling lonely or indecisive or uncertain or fatigued or lost. Whenever we feel these things, we are prompted to action. We look for relief. The brain looks for constantly to, to constantly get into a homeostatic state. And so when something is thrown off and we feel uncomfortable in some way, like when we feel cold, we look for a coat. Uh, when we're lonely, we look for social connection. So the brain is constantly assessing uh, this level of discomfort and looking for relief to to whatever provides that uh, alleviation of discomfort as easily and reliably as possible. And so that's where these habit-forming products really take hold. When you stop using them because of a a trigger, right? You, You don't check Facebook only when you receive a notification. You're checking it also when you're feeling bored or lonely. You know, when you're seeking a social connection, that's when you might use these products. And so that's when they really, really win, right? When you start using them uh, habitually, as opposed to thinking to yourself, ooh, should I do this? Should I do that? Like consider Google, for example. You know, uh, very few people will say, hmm, I wonder what the best search engine is. They don't check Bing. They don't check anybody else. They just Google it. Every time they feel uncertain, the internal trigger, the, the uncomfortable feeling, is uncertainty. Every time I'm uncertain, I Google it. I don't even check with the competition. So from a business perspective, that's an incredibly powerful place to be. It turns out Google is not that much better. It's actually not at all better. That uh, Third-party studies have found that Google and Bing are exactly the same. When people strip out the branding and they can't tell which is which, they actually it's a 50-50 preference split. So uh, it's actually not, I mean, in some ways it's worse. You could even argue with like all the privacy stuff that they're doing. You know, there's other solutions. I got, I got to give a plug uh, to DuckDuckGo. I mean, there, there's lots of other options, but we don't even think to ourselves, where is a better option? We just Google it. So that's an incredibly powerful thing if a company can form that habit, that even if their product isn't better, it still gets used. Uh, and, and so that's, that's really what these companies are striving for. Now, it, it, all of this stuff, I got, I got to give you a little footnote here. That a lot of this stuff is going to sound sinister, right? It's going to sound manipulative. But that doesn't mean it has to be manipulative, right? The same exact things that makes us uh, check Facebook or Google can also help us learn a language on Duolingo. They employ the you know, same exact techniques. It uh, can help us uh, eat better foods. I invested in a company called Pantry Labs that uh, does something very similar where, the, where, where they uh, change people's eating habits by making eating more convenient and using the hook model in that application. Uh, Seven Cups is a, is a company that provides free psychotherapy. Uh, Kahoot is a company that I invested in that, um, that makes in-classroom learning more exciting. So we can use the exact same techniques, the exact same hook. Uh, to help people live better lives as well, but I like to study the the big bad guys uh, because they're so they're so interesting and so successful. You actually had a blog post that I read recently, and in it you had mentioned that uh, one startup founder that that you didn't name uh, had confided in you. Uh, and, I, and I'll quote, uh, at the end of the day, I have an obligation to my investors and employees, and I'll do anything I can short of breaking the law to get people using my product. So to your point um, about how this can sound sinister, it can certainly be applied in that way too. And in that same post, yeah. you were talking about how the tech industry needs a new ethical bar. Um, mm-hmm. what, what was the, the one referenced uh, 
um, don't be evil. Was that, uh, was that Google? Or, Google. Or, or, yeah. 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 Um, and you were, your point was that we need a new ethical bar instead of just don't be evil. And what, uh, what you had come up with was the regret test. Can you talk about that? Right. Sure. Sure. So, you know, I get to ask this question a lot of, uh, all right. So you, you tell us how to design habit forming products and how to make our products so sticky and, uh, you know, it's, it's in a way difficult for me to not be an arbiter of, of some kind of ethical code here, even though, you know, I've never worked for Facebook. The Facebook was started in 2004. My book came out in, in uh, 2013. So I, I didn't invent this stuff. I'm describing it. So hopefully people can use it for good and be aware of it, of, of the deeper psychology and manipulating them. But, you know, it's tricky because these techniques are so powerful. There, there should be, I think, a little bit more guidance out there on how to use them. So I, I devised a few different uh, tests. One is for teams and one is for individuals. Uh, let me tell you about the individual one first real quick. The individual one is if you care about designing uh, ethically, right? If you are building a product to change people's behavior, first of all, let's admit it, that it's manipulation. That anytime you are changing people's behavior to meet your ends, commercial ends in mind. That, that is manipulation. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, per se, because there's two types of manipulation or persuasion. There's, uh, there's persuasion and there's coercion, right? So persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Coercion is always unethical. Getting people to do something they don't want to do is always unethical. So uh, there's a simple test for that that I'll get back to in a, in a second about how do you know you're persuading versus uh, uh, being coercive. We'll get back to that in a minute. But for an individual perspective, you have to ask yourself two questions. The first question is, um, if you looked at yourself in the mirror and asked yourself, is what I'm building, is what I'm working on, something that I believe materially improves people's lives? That's the first question. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. That's not good enough. The second question has to be, am I the user? Okay. And the reason I, I want people to ask both questions is that I want them to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do you know what the first rule of drug dealing is? You never get high in your own supply, right? Isn't that it? That's right. Never get <laughs> high in your own supply. So the reason I want you, I want people to break that that rule, is because if there are any deleterious effects to using the product, you're going to be the first one to know about it, right? So you're going to see it if there are any negative effects. And I think if you're in that quadrant, if you're in that quadrant of being somebody who uh, believes that the product you're working on materially improves people's lives, and you are the user, I would call you what I call a facilitator, uh, and I think you're morally okay. Uh, using these tactics. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be unforeseen consequences, right? I, I do believe that the people who started Google and Instagram and Slack and Facebook and uh, all these companies, I, I really do believe that they were facilitators. If you look at, you know, what they, they were clearly the users. They really did think they were, they were doing something to, to make the world better. Now, there still could be negative consequences. There, every technological revolution has downsides, right? When we invented the uh, there, there's this great quote by Paul Varillo that when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. There is always a price to progress. It doesn't mean that there won't be unforeseen consequences. But I think from an ethical perspective, you know, you're, you're truly doing something to help people and, and, and you're the user. Now, that's for the individual. For a team, I, I use what's called the regret test. So the way you tell the difference between when something is persuasion and coercion is a very simple question of does the user regret their behavior? Now, that's not 
for you to answer. You can't just sit in a room and say, hey, would people regret this? Yes, no, right? Because you can you can rationalize it either, any way you want. Kind of like, you know, this this meaningless uh, test that Google had of don't be evil. Well, what, what does that mean, right? We can, we can argue what the nature of evil and, and, and convince ourselves that we're not that. So the regret test has to be tested with real people. So if you are using one of these tactics that I describe in the book, and there's all kinds of other tactics you could use, uh, you, know, you will know whether it's persuasion versus coercion based on whether you bring in 10 people and you show them the, the, the design pattern, you show them what you have done you know, in, in the product to, to, to get them to do. And once they do it, you ask them, Hey, do you know what just happened? And, and are you okay with that? Would you regret that? So if you use what's called a dark pattern, like for example, a classic dark pattern, uh, is, is the roach motel where people come in and they can't get out. So, uh, stamps.com does this. A lot of magazines do this, uh, the wall street journal. I just had to unsubscribe to the wall street journal subscribing to the wall street journal super duper easy right you just just sign up no problem you don't have to give us your credit card until later no big deal but try canceling oh my god it took me 30 minutes to cancel my my subscription i i couldn't just email them i had to call i had to wait on hold this guy tried to sell me for half an hour it was awful it's a roach motel so do i regret signing up in the first place if i had known how difficult it is to cancel yeah you you bet i regret it so i would say that's something that does not pass the regret test and i'll never subscribe to the wall street journal again because they use this dark pattern. So what I want companies to do is if you have, it behooves us in the industry to have this, this ethical bar, one, because it's the right thing to do, but also just good for business, right? <laughs> like, you, you know, customers get really pissed off when they regret doing business with you. Uh, and I think what you see today happening with Facebook and how they're changing the, the Facebook algorithm, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're running like crazy right now to, to make these changes. And let me tell you, it's not because they're just, you know, so concerned about civic engagement. It's, it's not that. It's that people are using Facebook less and less. If you look at uh, every quarter, uh, people actually spend less time on average on Facebook. The product, the, the, the Facebook hook is getting worse and worse because it's less rewarding. It's, it's becoming worse at giving people what they came for when they use the product. They're starting to regret it. They're starting to say to themselves, ugh, this doesn't feel very good. I feel crappy after I used Facebook. And so that's terrible for Facebook. And so they're doing everything they can right now uh, to change it so that it actually gives people what they want from the product as opposed to making them regret using the product. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think I remember you sharing something recently. Um, it was an article from somebody else, and I think it was called, is Instagram just, is is the healthier Facebook just Instagram? Mm. And yeah. that resonated with me because... I mean, you know, we read a lot about um, studies that people, X percent of people feel worse after having looked at Facebook. Um, and, and you can argue they're not, nobody's being coerced, right, to use Facebook. It's, it's, it's all, to, to the point earlier, um, internal triggers, right? I'm bored. I'm going to check Facebook. I'm waiting in line. I'm going to mm -hmm. check Facebook. Um, right. So, uh, and, and I just found that really interesting um, how there, there's – there's just so many more options now too, right? I mean, Instagram's been around for a while. It's owned by Facebook. So um, there's just so many more options now too. And I'm sure that doesn't help the fa Facebook's case, correct? Like um, when, when the hook isn't as strong and there's a ton of other options, uh, that just weakens the case even more. Right, right. So, so that's, that's exactly right. Like if you, know, if you use, if you think about the difference between Facebook and Instagram, and actually if you think about why Instagram was such an important purchase for Facebook, I, I remember actually, I was in business school 
And uh, Mark Zuckerberg came to talk to my class. I went to Stanford, and so he was local. So he just came by, and he, 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 this was the same week when Yahoo offered him a uh, billion dollars uh, for, for, uh, for Facebook at the time. And it's laughable now. <laughs> my, yeah, yeah, a billion dollars, right? And, and we all laughed after he left, and we said, what a moron. He didn't take the deal. Is he crazy? He's never going to see a price like that ever again. Uh, you know, who had the laugh, last laugh there. And then he went out and bought Instagram. And I remember the same thing happened. A billion dollars for Instagram? What are you, crazy? That's a, that's a ridiculous price. Who, why, why would you pay a billion dollars for this silly little photo app? But he, you know, Zuckerberg is no dummy. He understands how important habits are in customers' lives. And, and if you think about it, you know, Instagram is really the core habit of Facebook from the early days before it got polluted in the newsfeed with all this, you know, junk content, uh, you know, the Instagram feed, the focus on photos is, is really what was the heart of Facebook in its early days. Of course, Facebook wasn't built for the mobile experience. It was, it was web first back in the day, not, not mobile first the way Instagram was, but you know, today Instagram, uh, there was, there was a wall street bank that tried to figure out what the price of Instagram would be today. And it ain't a billion dollars. It's something like $33 billion that that company would be worth today if it was separated from, from Facebook. That's crazy. And, and that's a great segue too. getting back to the hooked model, because I think Instagram, it's so much easier to share content. Like on Facebook, it's safe to say most people at this point are users. I'm more of a lurker at this point on Facebook than anything else. I, I, I don't post that yeah. much. Um, yeah, that's bad. That's bad news for Facebook because... Right. The, the data shows that uh, when people do that, if they just consume and don't participate, they actually feel worse. Their sense of well-being, and this is this is research that uh, I was surprised that Facebook actually published, and and bravo to them for publishing it. But they actually found that you know if you just consume and don't create and don't interact, you feel worse. It, 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 on the other hand, if you interact with folks, if you post, if you comment, if you like, if you share, you're actually your sense of well-being increases. But that's a, that's a big problem if people just uh, lurk and, and don't participate for Facebook, right? And and I've never I've never seen the numbers, but I would assume uh, the number of people lurking on Instagram is probably less because it's it seems like it's so much easier. There's there's a lot less noise, a lot less distraction, and it's much easier to to engage. It's much. E- I mean, there's 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 not links directing you all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can only heart things and comment and it's really easy to share something, right? The, the camera yeah. icons right there, your, your photo album is right there. Um, so, and, and that's kind of one of, uh, one of the things you talk about, uh, in the next step in the hook model, going from the triggers to action, you know, you mentioned like triggers are useless without action and to initiate action, like the doing must be easier than thinking, um, right? Like removing friction, making it really easy. Um, so how do great product designers inspire users or make it easier to act? And, and what would you say are really good examples of products that, that do make it really easy? Yeah, so this, we know uh, for, for uh, over 100 years now, there, there's an equation called Lewin's equation, and then it was kind of updated by a researcher by the name of B.J. Fogg uh, at Stanford that, that hypothesized that the e- basically the long and the short of it is that the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. That, that makes intuitive sense, right? The, uh, the, the easier a weight is to carry, the more likely you are to carry it. Uh, the, 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 the cheaper something is to buy, the more likely you are to buy it. Uh, the, the less cognitive effort something takes to think about, the, more, the, the easier it will be 
to, to, to think about it or do the, the particular task. So, you know, this whole revolution of uh, user-centric design is really this in a nutshell. It's shortening the distance between the recognition of the need, right, the internal trigger, and the reward. So the action is what's in the middle, is how simple can we make it to get relief from your discomfort? And that's why we use all products and services. All products and services manipulate our mood. What technology does is make that as easy as possible to do. Uh, so, you know, if you think about examples, you know, w- what made the, the, the smartphone such a profound technological revolution is that the ease of doing these things increased dramatically, right? If I want to send an email, I don't have to go to my office anymore. I can do it from anywhere. If I uh, want to video call someone on the other side of the world, uh, I don't have to go into some kind of special machine. I can, I can, you know, pop out my phone and do it from anywhere. Uh, if I want to connect with my friend on Facebook, I can, I can, you know, instantly access that, that person anywhere, anytime. It's always in my back pocket. So what it did was it, it, it uh, dramatically increased the ability, the ease of doing a behavior. And so therefore we saw the explosion of that behavior. Uh, you know, think of photographs, right? If we're talking about Instagram, you know, the, 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 the amount of, of photo and video capture today has skyrocketed because it's just so much easier to do. It's cheaper, it's more available, it's ubiquitous. So we do it more often. Right. That, that, that's a great point. Um, and so in, in, in moving from action to rewards, like you mentioned, uh, you, like you had just mentioned, action is sort of in the middle, right, of, of, of the trigger and, and the reward and the action is what, you know, leads people to relief and, and how do we get people to do that as, easy as easily as possible. But for rewards, and what I found really interesting in Hooked is uh, you talk about, uh, you refer to a study that revealed that what draws us to uh, act isn't really necessarily the sensation we, we receive from the reward itself, but the need to alleviate the craving for that reward. Um, right. Which sounds similar, right? But but there's a there's a really uh, important differentiation there. So uh, what comes to mind when I hear that is like you really or brands and, and product managers really need to nail the problem, right? Which is <laughs> really hard to do. And I, and I don't think. Uh, at least in my experience, enough companies spend enough time on that, right? And you you go through a few uh, case studies in the book about brands uh, going go to painful lengths to really understand the user and, and kind of become them. Um, so yeah, I guess like talk about that the importance there of of really understanding uh, understanding the problem and 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 the challenge and the pain that you're alleviating. Absolutely. So so the the point of the variable reward phase of the hook is to give the user what they came for, right? To scratch their itch and yet have a bit of mystery involved with what they might find the next time they engage with the product. And, and the reason this is so important is, you know, if you go back to the research of B.F. Skinner, the father of, uh, of uh, operant conditioning, he did these very famous experiments where he took a pigeon, he put the pigeon in a little cage, and he gave the pigeon a little disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at this disc, they would receive a reward, a little food pellet. And at first, the pigeon would peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. Right? So the internal trigger was hunger, the action was pecking at the disc, and then they would get the reward. So on its own, that's called operant conditioning. Right? Skinner could train the pigeon to peck at the disc every time they were hungry, they learned the new behavior. Great. But then Skinner actually started running out of these little food pellets. And so he couldn't give them every time the pigeon was hungry. He started giving them every once in a while. So the pigeon would peck at the disc. Sometimes they would get a reward. Sometimes they would get a food pellet. And other times, nothing would come out. 
And it turns out that when a reward is given on a variable schedule of reinforcement, when there's uncertainty there, when there's, there's a bit of mystery, the rate of response increases. Skinner saw the pigeon peck more often at the disc when there was variability behind that, that reward. And so we see that as well, right? Lots of animals respond this way, particularly Homo sapiens. If you think about what keeps us um, uh, pulling on a slot machine, right? Why, why do lottery people tickets. enjoy yeah. lottery tickets? Of course. Think about, you know, the Super Bowl was last weekend. What is it about sports? It's just a, it's just a silly ball bouncing around a field. Why are we so obsessed with it? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's mystery, right? If I told you the outcome of the big game, it wouldn't be that interesting, right? Nobody wants to watch you know, Super Bowl from four years ago, they know the outcome. There's no, there's no excitement. There's no mystery. It's all about that uncertainty. So you see variable rewards in all sorts of things that are interesting and exciting. Think about the news, right? The news isn't interesting unless you don't know what happened, right? The first three letters of news is new. So, uh, you know, anywhere that we find people engaging with, with, uh, something, this type of product, you'll always find this, this element of, of mystery and uncertainty. And so it's not about the reward itself. It's about the anticipation of the reward. When, you know, I oftentimes, uh, there's this word that gets thrown around a lot that, that makes me cringe because people use it uh, incorrectly. And that word is dopamine. And you probably heard, you know, dopamine yeah. hits or dopamine squirts doesn't work at all the way most people think. Dopamine doesn't make you feel happy. It doesn't, you know, it's not something you get after you get something you like. It actually, dopamine spikes before you get what you want. It's actually, it doesn't even feel good. It actually just makes us anticipate. It tells us, pay attention, something is going to happen. Uh, and so that's, that's really the, the role of the reward circuitry of the brain uh, is to heighten our awareness that something good might, might happen in the future. And you classified like uh, variable rewards kind of falling under three buckets, which was rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Talk about uh, really the differences between those three. Yeah. So rewards of the tribe are things that feel good that come from other people. So this is about our search for, uh, you know, uh, competition, cooperation, uh, empathetic joy, making someone else feel good. All of those things are variable, come from other people and have this element of, of mystery. The reason that uh, romance is so intoxicating uh, in the beginning of a relationship is because it's new, it's uncertain. So then we've got rewards of the, tri- uh, of the hunt. Rewards of the hunt are things that feel good, that have this element of mystery, and they're all about the search for primal needs, you know, for food, shelter. Uh, in modern society, we buy these things with money, and more recently, information has become a very important reward of, of the hunt. Uh, if you think about uh, a news feed, right? Why, why is the feed so popular in Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn? All of these apps have this news feed dynamic, this you know scrolling feed. Pinterest is another great example. Well, scrolling that feed works exactly like a slot machine, right? It's you're pulling to refresh, pulling to refresh, you're scrolling and you're scrolling to find that next interesting bit of content. And finally is the rewards of the self. Rewards of the self are things that feel good, that have this element of mystery, but don't come from other people and aren't about rewards of the, uh, of the, the hunt. They're not about material rewards at all. These are rewards that feel good in and of themselves. They're intrinsically pleasurable. Uh, so it's about the search for mastery, consistency, competency, control. Best example online is gameplay. You know, when, when uh, you play Angry Birds or Candy Crush or any of these other games, you're not playing them with other people. They're not about getting to the next, uh, they're not about uh, any kind of material rewards. 
But there is something fun about getting to a level, an accomplishment, an achievement. That's what these rewards are all about. Uh, we also see them in email, right? The finishing your unread messages or completing your to-dos or clearing a, 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 a notification from your home screen so you can clear it away. These are all examples of variable rewards of the self. And you could really understand just how powerful Facebook is because they appeal to all three. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The most habit-forming products always do. Email is probably the mother of habit-forming products. Uh, it's so hard to change people's habits around email for this for this exact reason. It's because it involves tribe, hunt, and self. And so the last bit in, in, in the hook model is investment. And really, you talk a lot here about effort and on, on how the more a user invests time into a product, the more they value it. Uh, you, you use this great example uh, about Ikea. Right. Uh, you know, most people know Ikea, say what you want about the quality of the furniture, but it's it's this massive brand, right? It's, it's ready to assemble furniture. And, and because it's ready to assemble and you have to assemble it yourself, like the company is able to thrive off that, right? Decreased labor costs, increased distribution efficiency. Um, but you have to go home and put it together yourself. But you talk about the hidden benefit that if I go home and I put together this, you know, uh, shelf or bookcase or whatever it is, that I actually value that piece of furniture more than I would have if I bought it from, you know, pre-assembled somewhere else, that even if it was better quality, because I built it, right? I put the effort in to build it myself, which is, which is just brilliant, right? Um, (laughs) That's right. And that's that's why you keep a a shitty piece of furniture for, you you know, you make it in college, but you keep it, you know, for your first house and you keep it for years and years. It's because look what I did. I I made made this this thing. (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of great research uh, called, uh, it's actually called the Ikea effect, which is that when we put labor into something, we value it more. Uh, And and it turns out that we see the exact same phenomenon uh, with all sorts of habit forming products, right? So when you buy a, a jersey from your favorite sports team, you like that team more. You're invested. You put something into it, even even though you did. You know, it's not like you built it with like you know, you didn't build the shirt yourself, but you paid something for that sh- shirt, and so it's now it's part of your identity. You've invested more into it. Uh, online, anytime we give a company data, content, uh, we build a reputation, we accrue followers. All of these things. They do what's called store value. Store value is a really, really big deal because unlike physical goods, right, things you buy in the in the in the real world that are made out of atoms, material goods they depreciate, right? They lose value with wear and tear. But things made out of bits, as opposed to things made out of atoms, these these digital products, they can actually appreciate because of this principle of stored value. So the more content, the more data, the the more uh, of, of these forms of investment that I put into a product, the better and better it becomes for me. And that's, that's huge. That's actually a revolutionary concept that, that these products are actually built in real time for the user. You know, if, when, when Henry Ford uh, made the Model T, he famously said that you can have it in any color as long as it's black because it's really hard to retool the factory for a Model T, right? It's very expensive to, to give people customizations. Well, today, Facebook is being made on the fly. Think about that. Every time you log in, you get your own personalized version of that website. That, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and it's all based on the data you've given the company. Now, this can be fantastic, right? I mean, we can do all kinds of amazing things. We can customize workout programs. I, I happen to use an app that helps me work out that cus- is c- totally customized based on my past workout information. Uh, I also use a, a, a finance software that does the same thing. So this is a trend well beyond Facebook. 
but it's critical to forming these these long-term habit-forming products is using the investment phase to improve the quality of the product uh, with use. Right. And a lot of tech companies, uh, I mean, the, the whole point of the hook model is you, you're trying to manufacture these behaviors. But in that investment phase, uh, a lot of companies, this is where they try to manufacture that during onboarding, right? I think you mentioned Twitter um, very early on, right? They they kind of understood that if they can get users following 30 people, uh, and I think it was like getting 10 to follow you back or, or or something like that, then users felt more invested, right? Because they they kind of had relationships and stuff like that. What other uh, good, good examples um, have you seen in terms of like products trying to onboard people right into that investment phase? Right. So it's not always a requirement to do this during the onboarding. It, it, it's nice. It's uh, If you can manage it, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, Twitter did an incredible job of, of getting people right into the hook. Typically, though, for most products, this is, this is really hard to do because onboarding is not a habit-forming experience. Onboarding happens once. And so a lot of times, it's sometimes it's pretty laborious. You got to give us all your data. You got to give us, you know, set up the product, blah, 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 especially in enterprise type products, it's a lot of work. Um, but when it comes to consumer web, if you can, in the onboarding process, walk people through what the actual experience is going to be like. So what Twitter did was they showed you, you know, here's the, the people who are most popular on uh, Twitter. You know, they showed you, here's Oprah's account and here's, uh, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's account and here's other these famous people's accounts. If you followed a few of those folks, if you made that investment to just follow somebody, anybody, you are much more likely to continue to use the product in the future. So where do you see, uh, you know, we, and we talked earlier about, um, you know, Facebook a bit, and, and I think Facebook's the best example just because of the, you know, obviously the, the size of the user base. But um, w- what do you make, I guess, of sort of the evolution taking place, like you, you mentioned before, people using Facebook less and less, they're changing the algorithm, they want to show you more local news, they want to show you more information just from your friends and people you're close to. Um, you know, as somebody who studies psychology and, and, and behavioral science and, and behavioral design, um, where do you see this going for for Facebook? Like, I can't imagine Facebook relinquishing power anytime soon, right, to to, I mean, besides Apple, Google, and, and Amazon, there, there's no company more powerful. But I, I guess, like, wh- where do you see this headed um, w- with Facebook? Um, I worry about Facebook, frankly. I, I think Facebook's hook is breaking down. Um, and that's, that. That's I mean, look, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't work for Facebook. I, I uh I use them as a model for how to build a habit-forming product, but I think if um, now they're very smart over there, but I'm not—I don't know what's going on on the inside of that company. But I—it I, seems to be that a lot of people are are getting over Facebook. Uh, I know, you know, when I taught at at uh, Stanford, uh, I used to teach there for for many years, and I just recently moved to New York, so I don't teach there anymore. But I remember even when I taught there last year, uh, less and less of my students. Uh, were into Facebook, right? They'd moved on to something else. They were more into Instagram. And of course, Facebook, I know Facebook owns Instagram, but we're just talking about the, you know, the core Facebook product, which has you know, the, the, by far the biggest user base. Um, I, think, I think there's a few things that break the Facebook uh, hook. I think we have talked briefly about the variable reward phase. You know, if there isn't the right ratio of interesting stuff to mundane stuff, if there's way too much you know, crap clogging up your newsfeed, then it's not rewarding anymore, 
right? So that's the number one place that the hook breaks, right? If, if you, every time you log into Facebook, like, oh, there's all this political junk and debates I don't want to have. And I don't really even know who these people are anymore because I've kind of friended everybody. And there's all these ads everywhere. Like if you pollute that, that experience and it's not rewarding, it doesn't give the user what they came for. Well, then they stop, right? They use it less and less. And so I think that's happening right now. I, I would be surprised, frankly, in if in five years we still even think of Facebook as a, a the, the core product as a very habit forming product, uh, because I think that the 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 core experience isn't isn't evolving quickly enough. Unless they just you know dump it completely and say you know we're really focusing on Instagram and WhatsApp and the other products, which I think are really doing very very well. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, part of, you know, I, I'm always, I think there's a big uproar right now about how Facebook manipulated the elections and how there's data privacy issues and how it's very addicting. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably all, all true. Uh, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical on whether they're going to still be so important in, in five years. Although, you know, you never, you never know. Who knows? Maybe they'll be able to, to, to continue to adapt and evolve and, uh, improve the product with time. Yeah, right. With that much capital, and more importantly, with that much data, I mean, anything's possible. But it's yeah, it's uh, it's alarming when you see the younger generations sort of laugh at it, right? And yeah, yeah, I think for their sake, I, I think we're also seeing a lot of people just quit, right? <laughs> and I think what's what's really scary about this for Facebook is that you know, as as habit forming as it is fundamentally, if you don't like the product, like if it doesn't serve your needs, fundamentally, that remember that that reward phase has to be rewarding. If it's not rewarding, then why am I using the product? And, and if people say, you know what, I'm done with this, and I just, they don't even have to delete their accounts. All they have to do is just delete it from their phones or just turn off triggers, right? Turn off the notification settings. That would be disastrous for Facebook. And, uh, and frankly, I mean, I, I kind of hope more people do that <laughs> because, uh, you know, if it doesn't serve you, uh, if, if a habit becomes a bad habit, I, I hope people look at the hook model and they'd say, oh, I understand how this works now. Well, how can I remove the triggers? How can I make the action more difficult? How can I delay the reward or how can I not invest? And so I, I love it when people write to me or, you know, come to me at a conference or something and say, hey, you know, I use your hook model, but I use it in reverse to break a bad habit. That's awesome, right? I, I love that. That was part of, you know, why I wanted to write this book. Yeah, I, I had a former coworker uh, in talking about Facebook. Um, I think like most people, she didn't want to delete her account, um, mm-hmm. but she she realized how distracting it was and how bad it made her feel. So what she did was she just logged out of the app, left yeah. it on her phone. Um, but the simple act of when she'd click on the app, she had to log back in, type in her username and password. She's like, ah, forget this. Like, totally. Ne- ne- That's absolutely mind. right. Yeah. So think, just- think about it, right? What does she do? She added friction in the action phase of the hook. She could still do it, but she added a little bit more friction. And we know when you make something more difficult, people do it less often. Right. Uh, th- th- this this was really brilliant. I enjoyed this. Um, and I know you have a lot. Uh, you know, you have the website nearandfar.com, the podcast, but you are also working on another book, right? Because I have space on my desk, really, for for another one. On top of book to, what are you What so, are you working on now? Yeah, so the next book is uh, tentatively the working title is called Indistractable, and it's really about the flip side of this, about how do you manage distraction, not just technological distraction. I think that's on you know, a lot of people's minds these days. Is like how do I how do I stay focused on what I know I should be doing. Um, you know, when, when Facebook and Twitter and all these other things and whatever Donald Trump is doing is, is, is so distracting these days. 
it, but it's, it's, it's about generally about distraction. How do I do what I say I'm going to do? And uh, when is when is that? Uh, when do you expect to maybe that that come out? Yeah, sometime this year. Uh, and if uh, if you're interested, if you any of your listeners want to keep updated, uh, my website is nearandfar.com. So it's N I R like my my like my first name nearandfar.com, and I'll be sending out updates about the the progress of the book. I don't know the the date quite yet, unfortunately. Really excited. Well, hopefully you're saying you're staying distracted free, right, while you're writing it. So uh, I can, I can <laughs> add right. some to the book, but uh, re- oh, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Maybe we could even have you back on in in a year's time to to talk about it and plug it because uh, I'm sure it'll uh, I'm sure it'll be a big hit with 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 our listeners. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you, Near. It was uh, it was great to have you on. Loved hearing sort of firsthand uh, have you walk us through the hook model. So thank you so much for the time. I, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. This is really fun. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.